Welcome to Kindred Media, a nonprofit initiative of Kindred World. Kindred has gathered thought leaders, researchers, and activists exploring the new story of the human family for over 15 years. Visit our website for our new story features, interviews, podcasts, and video collections at www.kindredmedia.org. Hello, Kindred World. Welcome back to our series on centering childhood and activism. My name is David Mettler, Kindred Social Justice Editor and the co-founder of the Kindred Fellowship Program. I'm here today with Lisa Reagan, Kindred's Editor, and we are joined by our guest, Dr. Tanu Biswas of the University of Bayreuth, an advisory board member of the Childism Institute, University of Rutgers, Camden. Join us as we dance between philosophical theory and action, exploring the intersectionality between childism and other movements like Black Lives Matter and Fridays for Future. And as we continue to reimagine together what the transformation of childhood could bring to our collective pursuits of justice and liberation. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Tanu, and it would be wonderful to start at the beginning uh, with uh, our first question is just how you came to be passionate about childism and anti-adultism work. Uh, thanks, David. I, um, I, I would say like while I was growing up, there was already maybe some kind of nascent uh, childism so to say uh, you know I mean I, I was quite aware of uh, experiences of being excluded from political decision making for example so when I was very young uh, I grew up in India in Bombay and at some point you know they uh, the government uh, due to some, <laughs> due to um, a certain political agenda changed the name uh, of the city and uh, I remember feeling no one asked me about my hometown, you know, because it was almost for me, it felt like, you know, you shouldn't call your mom, mom anymore, call her mother, you know, and I'm like, why shouldn't I, you know, why should I shift and you never asked me. Um, things like this, or also uh, growing up in Bombay, I was quite, uh, you know, it was very normal to see social inequality, but among children, like I, worked very hard so I could get a good education but there were constantly children I saw who were on the streets or you know children also the, the workers who came to our homes uh, you know their children and so I was very aware of this inequality and it it felt really unfair um, and I, I think in that sense I got quite used to thinking about children's marginalization through my own experiences um, and uh, I, yeah, I was always sort of very drawn to this. Um, and I uh, went on to basically study philosophy and also work with different kinds of uh, children as an educator. This was, you know, when I uh, did my bachelor and uh, master's. Um, when I, I, I developed sort of a stronger need to engage uh, in a scholarly manner more with, you know, childhood uh, and my social goal was to, you know, children's empowerment at a very global level. So my aspiration at that point was uh, to find a place in European academia and, and that's how I thought I was going to do that. Um, so I completed my master's and it was quite a struggle. I completed master's in philosophy and I left India about a decade ago to do like a research oriented master's in childhood studies in Norway. And uh, when I finished uh, my master's there, I worked in a kindergarten, which was also a very rich experience, uh, you know, but I was slowly, the knowledge from childhood studies was also helping me now to understand the kindergarten context uh, in a very critical way. Um, so that didn't go very well because of course it caused a lot of friction between uh, me and the adult educators uh, there. But luckily when that ended, I was invited by a newly appointed professor of pedagogy in Germany to uh, you know, join her team as a lecturer and pursue my doctoral research. 
so I, I came, I migrated then to Germany as um, what one would call like a scientific skilled labor, you know, with this permit and uh, began uh, integrating my knowledge of philosophy and childhood studies. So there was already a very like childish approach to pedagogy that I brought with me, but I, I didn't have a name for it. That's, you know, and as part of my doctoral work, I came across John Wall's work and the, the main insight there, you know, or rather the joy there was of discovering that there is a name for what I'm doing. And, you know, that was such a huge shift because I could name it now and I could, I could talk to others about it and explain, you know, that what I'm, I'm doing is, is childism. And, uh, and interestingly, even in childhood studies, it was not something that we were taught about. So it was, you know, it was very nascent even there. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, uh, this um, deep uh, dissatisfaction that I had with the literature I was seeing in education and pedagogy itself was, you know, sort of fueled in a positive way with finding the term childism, you know, saying this is the, uh, it was the language I was looking for uh, to think. And um, I decided then to get in touch. Uh, I was I wanted to reach out to John Wall then in the U.S. and I was hesitant because I I was like uh, I don't know like oh my god uh, how do I write to a professor in the USA you know it's just and then my supervisor actually like a very um, my long term intellectual mentor in Norway who's an anthropologist Thomas Eland Eriksson. He was like, uh, you know, just just go ahead, Tanu, you know, just write to him, say it's work in progress. And it was like this gentle encouragement and which made it lighter. So I, I wrote this first email to John Wall. And ever since then, it's it's been such a wonderful collaboration. And I I got involved in um, foundational work uh, for, you know, uh, getting the Childism Institute um, going that, that John Wall directs at Rutgers. University and um, in Germany as well. Now, over the last two years, there is a small community of uh, students and scholars who share similar scholarly and social goals because they, they go together. And, and these like newly forming communities uh, as, as a scholar and, uh, you know, as a person, uh, mostly, it, it enables me to uh, sustain this this fashion you know and keep cultivating it with uh, with others too hmm. wow thank you for sharing some of your journey and i i definitely uh, appreciate hearing some of your own childhood experience that connects into what fuels you um to to really try to see the change uh in society um that that uh, you didn't experience as a child, the, the empowerment um, of being able to be a part of decisions that affect you, <clears throat> like the name of your city. Um, I think that was a really powerful example. Um, and also the power of naming um, with uh, you know, John Wall's foundational work around childism. The, one particular thing I, I found intriguing that I want to follow up on is this experience you had uh, in, in teaching kindergarten and the resistance uh, and the friction you said that you faced in this role. So I'd imagine you, you would bring a critical consciousness to this role that um, others might, might not have had and could more easily kind of fit in um, and not notice or see uh, some of the things that you might be able to see. Could you share a little bit more about that experience? Because I'd imagine others like myself, anyone who's in a role working with children, when you become aware of, of adultism, uh, it actually makes it a lot harder <laughs> um, in some it ways to, yeah. to really just you know, be a part of the system, but also to work to dismantle the system as you're a part of it. So if you could share a little more on that experience, that would be, would be very interesting. Yeah, sure. It was um, that th there were there were several uh, things, but what comes to my mind is um, 
you know, so first I need to contextualize that Norway, because this was the Norwegian, I was in, in Norway at that time, and Norway is, uh, uh, it's, it's amazing in the way it understands, you know, the, the, the place of children also, you know, they, they try really to have a non-hierarchical uh, relationship to childhood, but, you know, they're still part of the same world where children are uh, marginalized and hierarchies do come into uh, to, um, the game. And uh, I, I think a lot of the friction had to do a lot with me wanting to um, let the, let children choose their own, uh, you know, let's say uh, activities or, you know, what they're going to learn or how much they're going to learn and so on and so forth. I didn't really agree with uh, the kind of disciplining um, uh, measures which were being taken. Uh, we were always sort of justified and I hated this. It was so frustrating. They were always justified in the name of love and protecting uh, children. And it was making me really mad because I was like, this is not, you know, what is, how does, how does one understand love here? Because we're essentially curbing them. And my job was a lot, it was more like a, you know, I was more like a, a watchdog almost sometimes. It was like, I have to count the sheep, you know, in the kindergarten, like, and, or the numbers are always tallying and they're going in and out and it's all sort of maintained. And I, I did the job, but, Inside it was hard, and sometimes when uh, you know a teacher was absent and I, I had to step in to support, uh, we we had a gala time. Uh, but for example, like you know, there's a there's a curriculum, you know, and they have to learn numbers from uh, or addition, let's say, from one to uh, hundred. Okay, and that's the limit. But in the group, the the children. They, once they started adding, I saw that actually, if you can add up to hundred, you can add up to a thousand. It's not, you know, it's not such a big deal. And we would do more and more and more. So it's like, okay, you know, you could add up to fifty. Can you do hundred? You know, can you do more than hundred? And they they felt so proud. And we kept increasing the numbers. But actually, I was going way beyond the curriculum because a child at that age should not be counting more than hundred or whatever according to that curriculum but their capacities and also just the will, you know, it's like we can do more and we can learn fascinating. And I, I kept going along with it, but you know, I was not supposed to actually do things like this uh, because you have to stop counting at a certain point. And things like this, you know, added to, to uh, friction with, uh, you know, other like the seniors there and yeah. Mm. Mm. Thank you for sharing more about that because it it definitely illuminates I think some of the way your background uh, in philosophy and then in practice come together and so you have the theorizing uh, as as well as the the formal practice with within roles uh, that you have with children and it's it's definitely um, illuminating to hear some of your personal experience with that. So we had asked John Wall to give us a definition of childism, just to make sure our listeners and readers are keeping up as we go deeper into the discussion. Can you maybe tell us now, I know this seems to be an emerging and evolving word and term. Um, and as John explained, when it originally came out, it was a negative term, and now it's been reframed into a, a positive term. Uh, but I would love to hear your perspective on where this process is right now. You're facilitating. I'll just let the uh, listeners know the Childism Institute's, um, is it quarterly uh, discussions, international discussions that they're having? Um, so there's there are ongoing amazing uh, discussions, and we'll include the link here below uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast uh, so you can follow um, these discussions. They are open to the public. But maybe tell us what's happening with this word and how it's evolving right now. Uh, yeah, Lisa, so uh, you're right in pointing out that, uh, you know, it was the same time that childism was used in certain fields to call uh, to talk about adultism, you know, um, and uh, childhood study scholars, especially John Wall being one of the uh, main uh, scholars at the forefront of this. Um, and I like to call myself as part of the childhood study scholars who like to, you know, reclaim this word, uh, first of all, in a transformative sense, because 
it doesn't make sense to use the term child to describe something adults do, uh, you know, to, so we, we can't talk about children's oppression by adults to the term childism. That would be like, it would, it would, it would be like using the term feminism to mean patriarchy, you know? Um, so uh, there is, um, uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, like there's this motivation to reclaim the term, first of all, in a, in a transformative sense. And um, what it, it very loosely uh, means, it, I understand it as first and foremost, a philosophical approach, um, which uh, you know, takes children and childhood as a point of departure. So we are not only trying to understand children's perspectives or you know, the place of childhood, uh, the structural place of childhood um, in society, but can that knowledge be the point of departure for further work, you know? And can we also, another aspect that's um, very uh, important uh, to a childist project is to deconstruct uh, adultism and to, you know, identify and critique that, but it doesn't stop at a critique or deconstruction. We deconstruct in order to overcome. So, uh, and this is not just, you know, it's not just about children, you know, well, let's say present children uh, or because we've all sort of, that's the difference between let's say feminism and childism because, you know, you could be a man and be feminist, but you've probably, never, I mean, you've not been a woman before. And of course you can, you know, have, you can, uh, you can transit and stuff like this, but uh, with, we've all been children at some point. So there is a connection. You've, you've been through that uh, track and there is a place to connect or understand. So that's what distinguishes it. And um, one doesn't necessarily have to be a child to think in a childist way because the, the assumption or, you know, is also that uh, a transformative process like this is not just going to, it's not just about benefiting a group called, you know, ch children, but all, the, all of society will benefit from this. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's sort of how I, I understand uh, childism. Yeah, um, I think that's, that's really helpful for our listeners to uh, to uh, to hear is just uh, there's a, a intersection between the empowerment of children and uh, the the empowerment of of all <laughs> of everybody and and I wonder you know I I think the example of being with children in kindergarten and and being able to question I. Uh, love looking like control or protecting, you know, in the name of protection or what does, what does love um, actually uh, look like in, in institutions like uh, schools. Um, I just wonder if that person, those personal experiences uh, have, have been foundational for your your theorizing about childism at a at a systemic level, but then also in the way that you engage in this world and with children um, in the day to day. Yeah, definitely, definitely they have. I mean, um, you know, it's I think these day to day uh, experiences uh, or practical experiences is, is really um, where my intellectual motivation is sort of. Uh, you know, uh, like uh, catalyzed, you could say. I I draw inspiration from that, and I mean, it's it's you know things that happen in daily life that move me, um, which is how I I go ahead and and theorize or say, okay, that becomes now a subject uh, to also talk about on a theoretical grounds, or you know, that that's also my sort of it's in a way also my coping mechanism to uh, when I. Um, when I'm confronted with a challenge or a problem or something moves me, I do tend to then start using intellectual tools to break it down, to make sense of it, you know, to write something about it and uh, research about it. So my professional engagement as a scholar is, is I would just say, it's, uh, 
it's a coping mechanism to um, you know uh, make sense of uh, experiences I've had with uh, children and continue to have because you know I I walk out on the road and I I see children either playing or you know interactions so I'm, I'm constantly looking uh, out for this yes yeah and I I just think it's such a great example uh, for what this work actually looks like. Uh, because what I see that uh, you, you bring is uh, this really deep philosophical and theoretical framework and background to really um, doing some of the, the, the concept development and the work that um, is very necessary at an academic level. But then also you have this, this really deep uh, intersection with your own practice. And so for our listeners, I feel like when you have these moments of critical consciousness of actually deepening your awareness um, with your relationships with children, it can be um, very intense in that now that you're aware in some, in some way, you can't be unaware. <laughs> And so you, yeah. you need to uh, figure out what to do next. And so I think that's what I've been trying, uh, I think I'm getting at myself is how do you navigate that? Because um, whether you're in the role of a parent or a teacher or a mentor or a older sibling, or you know just as an aunt or uncle or whatever your connection point is with a child, when you become aware of adultism, uh, and want to be an ally um, to, to childism, how, how does that process look? What, what do you think um, is the next step for, for an adult? And how do you actually mm. find solidarity with others who are taking this deeper journey? Uh, thanks for asking this. Um, I think one some of the main sort of key points for me are always that like awareness is not a bad thing for me. So every time I, I feel aware of something, um, it can be an extremely painful transition. Mm -hmm. And when I say painful, I literally mean like I could be crying, you know, in my bed for a long time. Like I'm physically like exhausted because this awareness sort of exhausts me uh, at an emotional and intellectual level. Um, but in that moment, what I try not to do is ignorance as a relapse, you know, so I don't want to like relapse into ignorance and now I want to take that awareness and move forward. So I just let the pain pass. Um, in, in, and, you know, you can reach out for support, you know, it, that could just be like talking to, you know, my, my chosen family or uh, friends or, you know, even calling a therapist if it's needed, but like take the support uh, to overcome the, just that mitigating, like that, that moment, which is hard. Uh, it's like, you know, when you were growing new teeth, it was also hurting, like it's, uh, so it, it's just like that, like you, you go with it. And I, like, I try not to choose ignorance. Um, and a very important thing is the awareness of adultism, the deeper it gets, there is always a risk that one feels guilty. And, um, you know, this is for me, just the worst loop you can end up in because you're doing a disservice to yourself, in my view, and you know, children, if you start now in this, you know, loop of guilt, 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 but can we try instead to move towards responsibility? So it's like, I, I can struggle um, from the awareness, but struggle to reach out and find ways how to, you know, become more responsible, um, you know, and also, you know, maybe, redefine what re responsibility looks like uh, now with this newfound awareness. And um, yeah, so I think these are like some sort of just, you know, um, sort of uh, strategies, so to say that I, I have. Um, and yeah, mainly I think the navigation is like not to fall into to guilt, you know, and choose the awareness, like let it, you know, push you forward. And I, I really think you know, being with children or understanding their lives is also a very important support in overcoming this tendency of falling into guilt and so on, because it's, it's not about, you know, me being the bad one or something like this. So, 
you know, we have a greater purpose here. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's very important um, for those who are starting to uh, become aware of um, the mistreatment of children actually being oppression of children. And I, I think that awareness, as you said, it can, it can really be emotionally um, intense to handle. And I think just what you shared was very powerful. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to just move us along um, I, I, so I, I think uh, Greta Thunberg said one of the things that she said in her speech to the, the world from the UN is that you say you love your children above all else and yet you are st stealing their future in front of their very eyes and mm -hmm. I think uh, I just wanted to connect in some of the intersectionality of uh, childism with um, other other major movements happening around the world, and just have a chance for your reflection um, first, and some of your work around Greta Thunberg, um, and and the response uh, from adults uh, around her her activism. Um, so. Uh... You know, as a, as an interdisciplinary philosopher of education, I, I'm, I'm particularly interested in understanding, you know, what is the philosophical richness that children and childhood have to offer adults. And Greta Thunberg's example, or, you know, the school strikes, they are for me, first of all, a very strong call to um, rethink pedagogical relationships, uh, you know, because it, education is an intergenerational relationship. And it's not just about schools. It's also, you know, what she's pointing out where she says, you know, why should I be in school studying for a future when there is no future, for example? You know, what is the, what is the, what is the place of schools in the, the global economy, you know? And um, are we just there to you know are they a motor for me that was the thing it's like are schools like motors to keep the global economy running because it's firstly you have what one does is they're removed from society and literally you know there's a class-based segregation so if you're six or seven you're in class one and class two and class three so it's like you know there's this very age-based segregation there's a curriculum imposed from you you're removed like you're removed from active participation in economy and your contribution to current economy is that you stay out of it. Uh, you know, that could mean staying out of your parents' offices or, you know, also just larger, like just don't be around, like everyone goes sit in that place. And then you're training to become part of an economy because, you know, global education systems are getting extremely competitive. Um, it's incredible. Uh, how much this whole logic of testing and, you know, making sure that children are, you know, like super, uh, they're super performers, you know, and every damn thing you want out of them. So uh, there's this competition going on at a very global level. Uh, children are being tested and so on, but what are they being prepared for to be part of an economy, which is, invariably like it, it, it this economy is not capable of securing some very basic human rights of children and future generations so you know right to life you know right to health right to play outdoors because we see this generation when we hear the activists not just Greta Thunberg um, when you hear some of these activists tell about you know their lives they're, they are not spending a lot of time going outdoors, not only because, you know, the school hours are difficult, but because of climate change, like it's simply too hot or too cold, or, you know, there is a, a, the forest is burning and there is too much smoke and you've got to protect yourself from smoke or, you know, the cultural rights of indigenous uh, people who are on small island nations like the Marshall Islands, Palau, they're growing up, these children are growing up with the fear that, you know, we might lose it all. And, you know, and, and when they say lose it all, it's literally like my island can sink, you know, it's just going to like be, 
it's going to be off and I, I'll have to migrate. Uh, they're, they're growing up thinking of questions like, should I be having children if things are, you know, so bad. And I mean, I just wonder how can we still go on thinking of the school system as, you know, not really protecting them from, you know, economic uh, economy or, you know, from politics and so on, because essentially this kind of a system marginalizes them. And we see the connections between schooling and economy um, becoming even more obvious now with the pandemic. Um, because in, in Germany, you know, the discussion has, a lot of the discussion is around, you know, okay, should we open schools? Should we close them? You know, kindergarten. And the main function there is no, but we need someone to take care of our kids so that, you know, the adults can keep on working. Now, what is that system doing? It's essentially splitting generations, you know? So what I'm getting at is it's, you know, you have to really, you know, change all of this. So just imagine a world where everyone had a 20 hour week, okay? What you would have more time also to spend with children. You would have more time to love because it takes effort, you know, to, to love, you know, to reflect, to go back like, you know, what you say, parents who are really in the trenches to say it's too late. It's, it's basically, is it too late or is it that we don't really have the time to now, you know, rethink our parenting? But if we had a world where we could give time for things like this, you know, we would not be speeding up on economies that's essentially, you know, uh, jeopardizing uh, their, their future. I mean, I, I have, uh, I believe all the scientists and, you know, the estimations uh, we have. And uh, also, I mean, it's, it, there's the, the intergenerational divide, you know, with this kind of the way schooling in this form splits societies is um, things to rethink. Um, and for me, the call from Greta was, you know, it, it connected these things. Also, she, although she herself doesn't say this, but when I'm hearing them, um, I'm really questioning at this. Mm. You, you just raised so many things. We, this call could be another three hours. <laughs> so thank you for that. That was, that was wonderful. Um, you know, what I'd like to take advantage of right now is your international perspective. And I did um, ask John Wall this question as well, because what I find is helping Americans to imagine that what you just described that could be possible. The things that we don't have, we don't have paid leave so parents can bond with babies. We don't have maternal leave. It shows up in our maternal and infant morbidity rates. Uh, horrifically, we're at the bottom of all international rankings for adult wellness, child wellness. And this is uh, because of the lack of family support policies that we have. Uh, so it's a very systemic problem, but helping uh, people who become parents to understand their struggles are systemic is, is difficult to, to get them to see that you, you just stepped inside of a system that's not prepared to support you and your child. So then adopting a, a childish point of view can be, as you just said, very difficult um, because what we're talking about is, uh, I, I, and this is a part of the alternative community that has been supportive of Kindred um, for you know 20 years now is a lot of unschoolers, homeschoolers, people who even just find ways to check out and be creative with um, their careers so that they can be present. Uh, in their homes and families. But when I have attended your calls and, and just in the past speaking with people from different countries, sometimes I can feel that their context, that they don't, they do, are not in a place where they have the same framing that Americans are having to deal with. And so I find myself as an American feeling like what a stretch to try to imagine what it would be like in a place that had those things for me as a parent. And how could I be different? So I was just wondering, because of your international perspective, especially in facilitating these calls, uh, is, there, is there a difference? Is there an awareness among other countries that Americans are this far behind? And is there, are there people in America who are working on the childism issue that we can connect with here, can help us to get to this framing and this bigger picture place? Um. 
I, uh, uh, well, you know, I, I tend to see, um, I tend to see, uh, I, I tend to contextualize adultism of societies, you know, also from an international perspective. You're very right in pointing out that America actually has not uh, put family, you know, in the center. And in that sense, uh, the Norwegian, you know, the Scandinavian models, even, even Germany uh, in that sense, it, it was, it is positive. Um, only one thing to be aware of is uh, you, one could still have adultist family-centered models. So it's, you know, we don't want to go into that track either. What I would like to actually respond to the point, uh, what I think that's the best I can do uh, with this question is this point of where you said, you know, it's so hard for people to imagine um, a different world. Um, what is positive in the U.S. system is that you do have, like you said, the, the free, the, even in principle, you do have the idea or even the legal possibilities of homeschooling, unschooling, you know, they, they exist. And this is something um, that can be used as well to transform, uh, system, which is unlike, you know, the case in Germany where it's, I mean, forget about it, uh, you know, it, it, it that goes into a different uh, direction. Uh, so I think these spots, they are kind of the, the positive areas, I think, to, to go for, but of course, not at the cost of connecting with community. So you don't want to end up in little islands of homeschooling, you know, where certain ideologies are being taught. But this aspect of, you know, it becomes so tiring to even imagine there, I would like to uh, invite, uh, you know, your listeners to, it's hard, but really five minutes of only an exercise of imagining a different world, draw a picture, you know, just that much, you know, at the end of the day, just uh, think, or maybe not every day, because I, I get it, you know, it's really tiring, you know, sometimes you just, you just want to fall flat and sleep off, it's hard. But if can you make those spaces, because I, I think at this level, and that's me, you know, speaking from a childish point of view, saying keep the imagination gaps, like keep them open. Um, and when you realize, like what I also told you before, when one realizes, uh, you know, oh, this is systemic, you know, and you feel like you're such a victim of the system. And it, it, it's, of course, you have to take care of those feelings. So it's not like you want to push them away. But, you know, don't become a victim of your self-victimization in there. Uh, keep those moments alive, because if we, if we stop imagining, there's no chance, you know. And what we can do as communities together, also, you know, through dialogues like this, is support each other to imagine. And, um, you know, and then, then take it from there. Um, so it's, it's hard to navigate this reality and imagination, but one thing we stop doing as we grow up and as we grow up as part of this system, you know, which is, is pretty much, I think the same all in some way or the other, you know, it's a bit better or worse in different phases, but the, the capacity to imagine, think differently, aspire, these get affected uh, in very harsh ways. And I think that's something to resist. And it's just, you know, it's just, like I'm saying, it's, it's a matter of like five minutes of regular imagination time, if, if that makes sense. I appreciate that so much of your approach to this uh, work is uh, somatic and mindfulness. And you know, we talk about that a lot at Kindred, like you just cannot enter this realm without having a plan <laughs> for yourself, for mindfulness, for conscious activism, as we call it. And uh, we're actually, you know, the, the Kindred Fellowship Program is centered around a lot of this, uh, you know, from the beginning, uh, how to how to tend yourself. Also throw out to our listeners on Kindred, you can listen to the um, inner child uh, as uh, work as necessary for preparing you to be an activist for through uh, Robin Grill. And I'll also throw out the term in our new story glossary, this uh, what uh, Tanu is describing is called communal imagination and a communal imagining. And it is uh, an active way to rash use rational imagination to see our future before it gets here together uh, around the values that we share communally. So those are some resources to share. And we have a few minutes left and I, I wanna let Dave ask Tano this big question he's been hanging on to. <laughs> so. 
Well, it's actually Tanu's own question from uh, the racism and casteism in light of childhood's colloquium. And I just thought it was a wonderful question to help us, like you said, Tanu, to just expand our imagination um, of what's possible. So the, the question you posed to the, the um, panelists there was, what may we learn from children that could inspire us to navigate social inequality in a transformative manner? And uh, if, if you could speak to your own question, um, and particularly around anti-racism uh, work, uh, I think that would be another intersection um, that would be uh, fascinating to hear your thoughts around how that connects with childism. Yeah, thank you uh, for this question. I think, um, and there too, you know, there, there are so many things actually I could say that we can learn from children, but, you know, let's say sticking with this um, track of, uh, you know, we, we've been talking about movements and, uh, you know, how uh, childism also connects with uh, other, other social movements like uh, anti-racism, uh, for example. I think one thing to learn uh, from uh, children is the capacity to play with meanings um, as a way of resisting, you know, and uh, that's great. So, I mean, to give you a counterexample, you know, when we think of playing, you're, you're thinking of an activity, but when, for example, Greta Thunberg goes and sits outside the parliament, what she's saying is uh, she's playing with the meaning of being a student, you know, she's playing with the meaning of what is expected from someone in that role. Um, I am also currently extremely um, inspired and the, um, uh, an Afro-German student in my town, um, Anna, who, who basically was, you know, she ended up in a classroom on, on uh, anti-racism pedagogy. And, and the, the class was led by a white a German teacher. And there was a friction because Anna didn't agree with some, you know, some things, uh, the way the teacher presented the theory. And, you know, so she wasn't really, she didn't agree with the pedagogy and the theoretical uh, view. So, it, it began with a conflict started there, you know, because Anna resisted. She was the only Afro-German girl in that class. Um, and uh, this, the critical resistance that sort of unfolded, you know, without getting into too many details, but to cut the long story short, uh, the teacher ended up suing Anna, like she took her to court and uh, Anna was criminalized on several accounts. But what she was doing was, you know, it was, she was showing her resistance and it was also a very deep need to engage intellectually. And uh, it's, the, she, she was, the, you know, the teacher dragged her to court, accused her of, you know, a campaign of character assassination and so on and so forth. You know, the student became a target of, you know, legal notices, but, and she's not allowed to speak about her discrimination um, anymore. And uh, what, what I'm simply not able to accept in such moments is the adultism uh, that's inherent in this, because one can look at this problem, or even let's say if you take it at a broader level and you take a Black Lives Matter movement, one can keep on talking about them as racism, because yes, you know, in one way, this is a form of racism, where you know, there's a, there's a German teacher, a white German teacher, who's imposing her theoretical understanding of anti-racism on an Afro-German girl who doesn't really simply doesn't like, like that. Um, and uh, how, how, you know, how out of hand this can get. But there is also an element of adultism there because essentially what happens is there's an epistemic authority being imposed, you know, you're, you're saying this is the rule, this is the definition, this is how it has to be, I know better, I teach you, you know, this is what is underlying it. And for me, these are signs of adultism. And this could end up having racist implications, it could become a sexist, uh, you know, it could have sexist implications. And we often tend to, because even, you know, when we're talking about the issue and dealing with it, or, you know, other similar issues, the focus usually falls on, okay, this is racism and we have to, you know, sort of deal with it. And the adultist aspect um, of the problem falls out and we, we have to sort of keep them together. 
And I think in these moments of resistance that children show, they are, in my view, it's, an, it's really an invitation to say, okay, you know, we're, maybe we're exposing some adultism here, you know, and uh, you, you may look at it. And it has to, of course, this is very challenging, um, but you have to find the right balance of which intersectional lens, you know, what sort of, how it fits together and how you make sense of it. But I think it's it's important to uh, keep that anti-adultist or adultist critical lens alive and not only understand uh, what uh, children are showing as a sign of, you know, okay, this is a problem of racism or sexism, but uh, the resistance is essentially for me also a very practical deconstruction. You know, it's a performative deconstruction of, of uh, adultism, you know, that, that we engage in, you know, ourselves. Wow, that was quite a powerful example of intersectionality uh, and really intertwined. I uh, just, I think the capacity to really see clearly how some like racism and adultism and, and other isms could truly intersect within one situation. And also, you know, a way um, that, you know, when, when there is uh, triggering or there's resistance, I, I loved how you framed it as an opportunity um, to, to become aware of uh, a moment of that, that needs attention and that there's a potential for transformation there. And I think with any uh, form of oppression having overlap in being dehumanizing, I think that the real, uh, the, the collective hope is that in dismantling all forms of oppression that we truly can rehumanize ourselves and actually, uh, particularly in dismantling adultism that we can reclaim our own power from our own childhoods, uh, personally as adults, I think is part of part of the uh, motivation for doing this tough work. You know, coming back to the beginning of uh, any time that you have a privileged identity, uh, to start to become aware of that privilege and to do the work to dismantle it at first feels like well, it it might be easier to be. Um, just unaware of, of that privilege. However, I think that deep down at a spiritual level, any privileged identities that we have, um, the, the privilege actually dehumanizes us. And that to me is, is where there is um, a, a solidarity in trying to dismantle a system of oppression is that both privileged and oppressed are oppressed by oppression, mm. um, that adults are, are dehumanized by adultism um, is something that I, I think could actually bring uh, people together to face you know, the, the toughness of, of dealing with the guilt, the, the challenge of the day-to-day, -day, working within systems that um, are not empowering to children and doing our, our part um, to actually be transformative and to reimagine. Uh, I'd like to, may I just add a, a word of caution in that though, that it's um, at least it, with, with childism, if you understand childism also as a, as a you know, pursuit of social justice, um, we, have to, we have to remember that this is, childism is a progressive pursuit. So it's very forward looking. One may of course, you know, look back into their own childhood as a resource to connect with current, you know, present generations and future generations. But the work, it's not about your own healing. It's not about you, you know, it's not about your own childhood. So we have to also not fall into this trap that I now get, you know, assumed about this is about my childhood issues, but we just take that as a little point of uh, reference, you know, to maybe connect, but we have to, of course, be aware that children today or the child, the person, you know, the human in front of you is not you when you were, you know, six or seven, or, you know, it's not that, you know, a child who was oppressed. 
the work is for it's it's progressive it's forward looking and that's um that's a very important aspect to uh keep in mind yeah that's actually very much in line with what uh, john wall shared in terms of empowering children uh and i think i think the nuance for me is just that i think some of the work for adults uh to realize that the the times in which they're triggered by children um, or are reactive to children, many of those moments come from things that uh, adults need to maybe reflect on from their own childhood that can can be healed um, as part of, I think, uh, you know, an adult's uh, capacity to, to actually um, reclaim their own power that that they lost in their own childhood and and i see that more as an an, an act that an ally um does um intrapersonally mm. to be with children in a way that is not reactive or coming from our own wounds yeah, yeah. i i should clarify that that's exactly what uh, robin grill's work is about with the mm. inner child work is to help adults resolve their inner child issues. So that's not what they're projecting onto children or corporations, as he says. You, know, you have to get this piece uh, into your awareness and integrate it in a way so you understand uh, you know, when you're shaking your fist at a corporation or, or as you were saying earlier, adopting this victimhood, you're still back in your childhood. You need to go back there and, and resolve these consciously wherever these pieces are and then then your adult self is a is able to come forward in awareness and more empowerment and you're not going to stay in a place of victimhood and you're not going to uh, bring your unconscious stuff because now you're you've befriended it onto other two children to children who are really in their childhood <laughs> right and I, I think the term in, in social justice education is just actually dismantling the internalized oppression right um, there we go. But I understand um, your point, mm -hmm. Tanu, uh, yeah. in terms of the empowerment of children not being about, like it's not, the focus is not on adults. Um, it's really on the, the empowerment of, the, of children themselves. Right. I have a last, uh, maybe an inspiring example from uh, the USA uh, to share uh, with you since uh, Lisa, you also asked, you know, how um, there, you know, the, the native uh, Indian, I don't know if you've heard of the native Indian seven generation principle. Uh, so the seven generation principle basically was that when a, a group of elders got together to make a decision about their communities, they had to make sure, and this was especially, you know, with, with resource, like natural resource related decisions, they had to make sure that that decision would be beneficial for like seven generations down the line. Now, if you have a principle of governance like this, you are guaranteed to have a childish, you know, society there because it's not just about, you know, you can't end up cutting a tree then because you'd have to think, okay, we have to make sure that the benefits are going to be there seven generations down the line, which clearly none of our current systems of governance can, uh, you know, uh, show. But you, you know, you have uh, this kind of knowledge um, in the U.S. as well. Uh, so that that's those also resources uh, for you. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. That reminded me of one of the the points of the article I just read. It, one of your articles, just about even just the the felt experience uh, and conception of time, and how that's different. Um, and and actually, adults can uh, and children can play with the concept of time and and. Uh, how time can be a factor. Uh, yeah, in, and I think children, children can, um, and young people, they, to the contrary, knowledge that they have a very narrow, like a small temporal scale. I think especially, and also with the example of the, the climate activists, we see that they have actually a very broad, like, you know, long-term, it's a very uh, broad temporal scale that they have. Uh, so, you know, we, we, could, we could be part of that. Mm. That's beautiful. 
Thank you so much for coming and sharing this amazing work that you're doing. Uh, I look forward to staying in touch with you and John and sending our listeners over to the Childism Institute's forums. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, yeah I also you. wish you uh, great uh, luck and uh, in, your, in your work as well. That's, I congratulate you too on the work you're doing. Um, I actually, I had a, a quick question, Tanu, for, uh, about the, is it Critical Child yeah, Collective? Well, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the Critical Childhood and Youth Studies Collective. That's right, yes. And, and what's your connection with, with uh, that group and, and how's that, uh, how is that, uh, how are they affiliated with the, the Childism Institute? Just wondering. Yeah, so Anandini Dar, one of the founders, is also advisory board member of the Childism Institute. And um, we, I mean, I'm, and I'm also member of the Critical Childhoods and Youth Studies Collective. Um, well, that's more a space of, um, uh, you know, they have webinars, blogs, and so on. And their, their goal was more actually to create that space um, in South Asia, you know, also for, for childhood discussions in uh, childhood studies and to connect uh, scholarly communities there. Um, but uh, Anandini Dar, as I said, she's also a member of the advisory board of the hmm. Childism Institute. So, uh, yeah, and then we, we thought of, um, you know, this, this dialogue between racism and casteism as one of the co cooperative events that we could do. Yeah, I am just so grateful that you emailed me. Uh, I, I felt it felt so you know, one of those gifts that you just I'm like, oh, this looks important. I should open this email uh, because I was not even aware that the Childism Institute existed, nor, you know, the uh, Critical Child and Youth Studies. And it's it's just amazing to feel this global there, there's connecting points and solidarity from east to west to north to south. Um, and I know in some ways it's a small community, um, but it's growing. It is. And it it's is. really um, a wonderful feeling to have allies and support in this work. And even for the concept, like you said, to be named <laughs> correctly <Yeah. laughs> is huge. It's, it's just it huge. Is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm so grateful we're connected. Yeah, likewise.